You pray for your pastor. Thank you, Lord. Jesus is the, is the center point of all history and all existence. Everything that was made was made for Him, by Him, through Him, to Him. Everything that was made was made by God and for God to glorify God. So this life in which we live would try to get us to buy this lie that reality and life is about other things and then Jesus is just an aspect of that life. Like our life is about being comfortable and having the career we want and having the education we want and having all these other things. And then once we get that in place, then we'll just pull Jesus on in as it's kind of this co-pilot to help us guide in our life. But, but see, if, if that's our take to reality, if that's our take to spiritual things, if that's our church existence, then we are completely wrong. Because the reality of life is that Jesus is everything because everything exists because of him and for him and that's what we're supposed to be doing so whenever you see somebody all out for Jesus there's a part of you that says they're going too far but the reality is is they've not gone far enough and you are setting your standard of reality based on something else other than King Jesus and what he says so it's not enough that you flirt with this man, Jesus. It's not enough that you just, you know, uh, give him some lip service one day, one hour a week. Uh, it's not enough that you live that way. That the entire existence and everything in which your life is to come up to the sum of the reality of God is to be about King Jesus and his business. And if that's not your standard, if that's not your goal, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about long sleeves and buns and long dresses here. I'm talking about a heart that is offered up unto God. I'm talking about a heart that is burning for King Jesus. I'm talking about something that it goes to another plane of existence that would say, Jesus, you're everything in my life. You belong to God, and I belong to God. And whenever we begin to not have that reality, that identity figured out, we'll give ourselves to other things, and we'll part our life out like an old vehicle, and we'll sell this part of our life to this person, and this part of our life to this, and this part of our life to that. And before we know it, we're so parted out that we have nothing left to offer the king in whom everything that we have is supposed to belong to. I want to tell you the story of a, a dear friend of mine, and this is one of the reasons created a burden in me as a young man, newly saved. I had a friend who was a beautiful specimen of a man, if I can say that without being weird, okay? <laughs> but he was six foot, 220 pounds, all muscle, in the ninth grade. And see, at my school, uh, of the skinny guys, I was the biggest and the strongest of the skinny guys. So we didn't have a tight end. So they said, you're the biggest and strongest of the skinny guys. In eighth grade, I was 5'6", 100 pounds. You know, there's different categories of guys. There's those that hit puberty when they're like sixth grade. And then there's those that don't start gaining weight till they're 25. 
I was the guy that couldn't put on weight till I was 25. So the massive man that I had to go up against was a defensive end. If you know anything about a defensive end, the tight end's got to block the defensive end. So five, six, a hundred against six foot, 220. And so we made a deal. <laughs> if I told him where the play went, he wouldn't tackle me hard. <laughs> so being the man of integrity that I am, I got down in a three-point stance and said, sweep this side. <laughs> but hey, when you're five, six, a hundred and you're on the line, you do what it takes to survive the next year. So this man was, I mean, he was amazing. He, given the football, he would be a touchdown almost guaranteed every time. But there come a crossroads in his life to where um, he'd started making some bad decisions and got with the wrong crowd. Coaches tried to reach out and give him chances, but he made his choice and he walked away from a good path, the right path. And I didn't see him for after we graduated and, and for years, and so I went back to a graduation. It was in 2004, I believe. And this same mountain of a man, a specimen, was coming down the bleachers and was about that big around and was green. And my jaw hit the floor. And I thought, who is that? I asked a friend of mine. He said, that's so-and-so. I said, you're kidding me. And by this time I was saved, and so my heart just, just began to ache. So in the crowd, we're greeting people, and it's all I could think about. <laughs> I couldn't get the image out of my mind. And I'm trying to be happy for my friends that have graduated, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave that image that I saw. And so God just began to burden my heart. And so I, I ran through the crowd, and I began to look for him. And I, and I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I spent the whole graduation where everybody's high-fiving and throwing up hats and everything else. I spent the whole time trying to find him where I could tell him that there's hope and that, and that, and that there's another way. And, and, and I couldn't find him. I even prayed, God, where, what's it? Couldn't find him. About a year later, I read in the paper and then get informed by some friends that he had gotten into selling drugs and somebody had broke into his house and shot him and killed him while he was sleeping. So much potential. And if you want to know what drives me, this is what drives me. If you want to know, there's no complex riddle or no formula to which I'm trying to live and grow this church and do this. I just, my heart aches for the potential that is in each and every person. And for them to choose sin and to choose a lesser way. To throw everything away when Jesus has everything good in his hands. And to choose something that is going to eventually kill them. I hate the devil. 
hate them. It's that the devil is so jealous of the potential that's on the inside of each and every one of you. You know what drives him? The fact that you're going to rule and reign and judge angels. And he can't handle that. He can't wrap his mind around it. He's so consumed with his own beauty that he wants to bring you back down into the dust and into the dirt from which you came. That's his goal. That's his goal. He wants to destroy in your mind any potential that you might have. He wants you to use the giftings that God's given you and the, and, the, and the good things that God's put on the inside of you, the talents for which you didn't even earn that God just deposited in you for His glory. He wants you to get to use those into fruitless, profitless labor. And He wants you to use those things so that they don't add up to nothing for the glory of God or the kingdom of God. And He wants you at the end of your day to waste your entire life on lesser pursuits than on King Jesus and His kingdom. That's what He wants to do. He wants you to pursue things that are fruitless. He wants you to forsake the ultimate things to live out the good things. Satan don't care that you can hold down a job and be a normal functioning member of society. He'll leave you in that place so comfortable where you'll create a standard under yourself. Come on now. He'll have you thinking you're righteous when you don't even know the first thing about submission to Jesus and a life poured out for Him. He'll have you thinking because you're white and middle class and can, and can hold down a job and be a normal person that you're giving Jesus all that He deserves. Thank you for those good amens. So I should have looked at my crowd first, huh? But I'm burdened, man. I'm not playing games. I'm not playing games. I'm not playing games. Because if your little pet sin, just because it doesn't stick its head out and surface like somebody else's, you better deal with that sin. Because that sin will end up killing you. It'll end up killing you. You better put it on the altar. You better give it to God. And the story I just told, we would think that's a tragedy. Rightfully so. But what if I told you he continued playing ball, went on to college and got a great job and lived his life, but never gave his all to Christ? I submit to you that would still be a tragedy. See, we have these, 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 these pictures of what we call evil, like Hitler or a serial killer. And we and that and feel like that alleviates us of the standard of feeling like there's something that we don't need to deal with in our own heart. And we create these invisible standards and we think that because the, uh, the scraps we throw to God have more meat on them than the ones our neighbor throws to God, that God must be pleased with our lives. But, but, but that's not the way it works. And because I hate bad endings so bad, I don't want to see another bad ending. Because you know why? It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. 
that God, as He dies on the cross and He's murdered and bloodied and naked, do you know He takes the most evil event of human history and He turns it on its head and makes it the most beautiful event of human history where we see the love of God laid out before us and leads us to God? So God can turn what Satan meant for evil and He can turn it to a great, great good. But you have to be honest with yourself. You can't come in here and perform and make the trip. Jesus either has your heart or He does not. You're either all in or you're lukewarm, my friend. And when you're lukewarm, He vomits you out of His mouth. Because Jesus would rather us not play the game and be honest than He had us play the game and pretend that we are in Him and of Him. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 13. The book of Judges can be summed up in this statement that keeps appearing where basically it says everyone did as he saw fit or everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the theme of Judges. Israel had bound itself to God by covenant that it had accepted and the nation had disintegrated after Joshua. And as it says in the Word of God that there grew up a generation that didn't know God. That just a year earlier they were the most mighty, most feared nation who are representing God on the earth and went from that to the most uh, un- Uh, spiritual and socially unacceptable, most backward people on the planet. They had forgotten their heritage. Uh, But God still makes a way. He still rises up men, crisis men, in the hour that they're needed most. And so God started raising up these men, and these men were called judges. And where the book gets its name. See, Satan's plan for you ultimately is that you would use all the potential in your life and that you would pour it out on fruitless labor, that you would pour it out on things that weren't of a spiritual uh, emphasis. And this is where we find this man by the name of Samson. And I want you to read about his beginning with me. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat no unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. 
I did not ask where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to meet me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. Neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And the woman bore a son, verse 24, and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahaniah, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtel. As we read about this man, Samson, we see supernatural beginnings. And there's, if you notice, there's something about Samson's life that really parallels Christ in a sense. And there's an angelic visitation to the woman alone who says there's a great deliverer coming, right? Uh, there's all this supernatural. She has to then tell the father who then is praying, Lord, uh, I want to hear that too to make sure that I know that that's right, just like Joseph. And then Joseph was visited uh, to tell him that Mary was with child from the Holy Spirit. And so we have this visitation uh, that happens to confirm and this young child with promise on its life before it's even born. And I submit to you today that before a child is even born, there is a promise on its life. There is a prophecy over that child. There is a unique destiny that that child is to conform to. But just like any unique destiny, there are rules in which we must follow when it comes to following God. And so the rules for Samson was no wine, no dead things, and no razor on the head. That this was to point people back to a Nazarite vow, to point people back to the law of God, back to the ways of God. And so this man was going to grow up and be a little bit different because he was governed by a vow called the Nazarite vow. He was governed by the word of God and the things of God and the plans and purposes of God. And anytime you begin to step out into that sphere, you are going to look different. It might not be long hair, but you're going to stick out like a sore thumb in your culture if you've made a vow unto God to fulfill the potential and the calling that he's put on your life. Samson is a young man. When we catch up with him at Judges chapter 14. 
This is what it says in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Uh Uh-oh. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to her father, Get ready, this is throughout the entire theme of the book of Judges, Get her for me, she is right in my eyes. Now there's a little twist here. Verse 4, and his father and mother didn't know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So I want to make a point here real quick. Is that the the Lord had given him this plot to overthrow the Philistines. Uh, So we can be in mission serving God. But if we don't guard our heart in that mission, we can give over to the very thing we're trying to minister to and then end up falling into that trap and becoming the thing that we were supposed to remedy. Uh, That's why we've got to guard our heart. That's why we can't just step out into ministry half cocked. That's why we've got to guard our heart when it comes to relationships and being with other people. Because when we don't guard our heart, when we don't ask God and we ask Him to bless something that was our idea and not ask him to bless something that's his idea something can begin to manifest and begin to stir and begin to 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 tear away the plans of God and so if you want to do a Nazarite vow if you want to walk this thing out and have maximum impact for Jesus you're going to have to give him every area of your life so that you can fulfill the destiny that he's appointed you to Verse 5, then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. That's odd. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Apparently they were tearing young goats back then and that wasn't a big deal. Here, here's, what the, here's what the biblical author is trying to get you to get there. It's wanting you to understand that as one can take a goat, slaughter it, and skin it because it's tame, he was, had the same power over that which was wild and untamable. See, when God puts a call on your heart and puts a ministry in your life, uh, there's a supernatural element that's got nothing to do with you and got nothing to do with your natural power. Uh, But there's something in it that is supernatural to do the work of God that can tame that which is untamable. And so God has got a call on each and every person that's here to tame what has been deemed untamable. Uh, And so just like a man could could skin a, a sheep, or a goat, God wants you to be able to skin a lion in the same kind of fashion. See, there's, a, there's something that God has put on us that is supernatural. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he tears this young lion, or this lion like a young goat. Verse 7, then he went down and talked with the woman. And now there's a switch here. She was right in Samson's eyes. See, what was a mission to overthrow the enemy became an entrapment and a snare from the devil. 
what started out as something good ends up being something bad. See, when we are in the crossroads of temptation, we really find out who we are and who we are serving, right? Right? And, and so the, what I found in my own life is that when I'm in these crossroads of temptation, uh, I will almost try to justify anything to God in order to make him put his blessing on it and allow me to keep going the way that I'm going. And there's this period of grace that God gives someone to deal with that stuff. Amen? There's a period there. And we've all felt it, right? There's that period of time when God begins to convict your heart by the Holy Spirit. And you say, oh God, I don't want to deal with this. I'd rather just do it. And God just says, nope, we've got to deal with it. And then in your private prayer closet, you get on your knees and say, God, I'm sorry. I lay it on the altar. I give it completely and utterly to you. And you get back up and you take whatever precautions you've got to to kill that thing off your life the peace of God floods your soul you realize you did the right thing and then you say to God why did I even fall for that to begin with because now I feel your presence in its fullness the way it ought to be felt but then when you don't deal with it suddenly that inner witness begins to get a little bit quieter and quieter and then you get a little more, more autonomous and more autonomous. <laughs> Bless God. I can control my sin. I can practice moderation. Bless God. And you don't realize how silly you look. You think you look like Prince William, but you really look like somebody <laughs> off Sesame Streets. You look like an old deadhead, to be honest, is what you really look like. And the thing you make fun of is the very thing you're ashamed to step out into in order that you could be used of God. I better get going here. I know they got a countdown clock on me. <laughs> Verse 8, after some days he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. This is weird. And behold, the swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey, he scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave them some. Wow. Thanks, son. And they ate, but they did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Okay, so here is my man, Nazarite Val. Hair not to be cut, no dead things, no wine. He's in her vineyard, kills a lion, comes back to the dead lion, finds a, some honey in the carcass, a beehive in the lion, takes it and ingests it. See, now he's presupposing upon the grace of God. 
And sometimes we think because we're still operating in a gifting that God is still pleased with our life. But it doesn't matter if you're operating in a gifting or not. Satan's a way better uh, uh, gifting than you could ever be in, okay? Hear me out. And, and, so, and so he's walking in his gifting and he says, well, the strength is still there. The supernatural thing is still here. God must be pleased with my life. And so he takes the honey out and he eats it. And then guess what? He gives it to his family. So suddenly he's not just touching something unclean he's ingested something unclean so now he's not just unclean outwardly he's become unclean inwardly and he's now spread it to those unbeknownst to him under his covering and now he is spreading uncleanness because he refused to heed the commandments of God and all while it looks so sweet looks sweet who doesn't like a little honey? <sighs> Homeboy is out of control, let's just face it. He's just out of control. He's given a gift by God, a life by God, and using it for his own purposes, for his own evil, his own selfish desires. It reminds me of Balaam when he was hitting the donkey. God has told him, don't curse what I've blessed. This other ruler sees the people of Israel making advances, and they say, here, Balaam, you're a man of God. Curse these people. And he's like, dude, all I can do is say what God said. God's not saying that they're, that they're cursed, so I can't really curse them. And so he keeps on, keeps changing the amount of money. Then suddenly Balaam's on his way to see if God will curse the people in something that he knows that God's not going to do. And so he's on a donkey, right? And this donkey just stops. I'm not making this up. You ought to read y'all's Bibles. There's some stuff, there's some stuff up in there, okay? And so the angel's got a sword, and he's sitting there. And if Balaam makes one more step, the angel of the Lord is going to, going to take a whack at him with this sword. And Balaam can't see it. And so he's hitting this donkey profusely saying, would you come on and hurry up, you stubborn donkey? The donkey can see what the man of God cannot. Because once you give over to the commandments that are contrary to God, you become blind. And people that know way less than you will be able to see more than you. And so this donkey is sitting there, stuck in his tracks. And finally, God gives this donkey a human voice that turns around to Balaam and says, Can't you see there's an angel up here? If I can see it, surely you can see it. But that's what we do. We, 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 we set on the grace of God and we beat it and we bash it and say, keep going. Keep carrying me, Grace. Keep carrying me into these places I don't need to go. I know people have told me good advice. And I know my faith family has gotten around me and said, you need to do this, 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 and this. But you know what? I've got the grace of God in my life. So I'm just going to keep beating this thing right on into judgment. It's almost over. Don't worry, guys. Y'all are my therapy session, so just let me get this out. See, a word or a situation tests our, tests our true character. People always wonder why everything's upside down in their life. Probably goes back to a character defect somewhere that you're not willing to deal with. 
mad at the boss and the job, but hadn't been on time once in their life. Thank you for those good amens. Must have a church full of bosses in here. Cool. Asking God for a healing but won't diet or exercise or stop doing harmful habits. Come on now. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't say it. My relationships are all bad. Well, quit meeting people at the bar, dude. Like... And if you ain't going to give your heart to the Lord, don't come in here looking for them either because we don't need that. Come on now. All right, we're moving on. Judges chapter 16, verse 15. It all comes to a head here. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And this is him with Delilah. And he's gotten so comfortable here that he's laid his head in her lap. And sleeping, there's something about sleeping where you're the most vulnerable. Where you choose to go to sleep is the place you trust the most. So now he's sleeping. Where your great strength lies, verse 16, and when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. That if we keep grieving the Holy Spirit, we can get to a place where we don't even know God's left us. And we can create some kind of theology of how we prayed in VBS when we were five years old and that we're good to go. We'll create theologies to cover up the fact that God has actually left us. We'll even quote Scripture. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And He won't, but you can leave Him and forsake Him. See, nothing of this world could bind Samson. The only thing that could bind Samson is when he handed the power over off to somebody else. See, nothing in this world can bind you, ladies and gentlemen. 
But it's when you give yourself to something that is contrary to what God's Word says, then suddenly you've given your allegiance, your power, your destiny, your anointing, and you've put it in the hands of another who is not God and will not honor it, cherish it, blossom it, flourish it, and bless it. They will destroy it. They will tear it down. They will kill it. And you won't even know God left you. See, Samson wouldn't listen to the warnings. And so he gets his eyes gouged out. And he's in a prison house, the Bible says, and he's grinding meal. He's now using the strength that God gave him to grind food for the devil and his people. Suddenly his giftings are misused to further Satan's kingdom. He's bald, blind, and doing the work that an animal is supposed to do. See, whenever we leave the Lord, we leave our supernatural origins and the heart and plans of God, and we demote ourselves to just animals that are living here on the earth. And He begins to push and push and push. But you know, I got to thinking, He's not just grinding in the prison house. Do you know what also is happening? He's being ground in the prison house. See, God's got this way of getting your attention. He's got this way of breaking your fingers to get you to let go of something that's going to kill you. Come on now. God's got this way. And so not only is Samson grinding in a prison house when his job was to rule, but now he's being ground. And he begins to come back to himself. And the Bible says that uh, in verse 22 that, uh, that, that as he comes to himself, I want to read it for you real quick. But the hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaved. See, we can come to a place, the ending doesn't have to be bad. We can come to a place where, where our hair begins to grow again, where our strength begins to be replenished again. And it might take some grinding from God, but if we'll call out to Him from that place, suddenly that hair will begin to grow. And you know what? That hair probably will begin to hit His shoulders because He's blind. He can't see. He probably doesn't know His hair's growing. He's got to trust on everything that He's feeling in the moment, even though everything looks contrary and He's in a prison but he begins to feel that hair hit his shoulder and he begins to probably feel that hair hit the middle of his back and he said wait a minute here God's not done with me God's touching me here yeah I'm having to pay for some of the sins that I've done yes I'm having to grind here in the prison house but I'm being ground back down to reality of who I am and who I am is a man of God called to rule and called to reign and so as he begins to grind this green they pull him up to make a mockery out of him and he goes to the Philistines party and he can't see and he calls out to God and says God let me have one more victory God if you can see fit let me have one more victory even if it costs me my life let me have one more victory and they set him and he says, set me between two pillars. And you tell me what this looks like. Yeah. 
And in his death, he kills more enemies than he defeated in his life. Who does that sound like? Praise God. See, God can redeem anything. Anything. God can redeem. Justin, would you come up here and just begin to play? I want to close with this. There's a lady in the New Testament by the name of Mary of Bethany. And Mary seems to always be in the wrong place, but she's actually always in the right place. Uh, If you remember the story where Martha is um, doing dishes and she's mad at Mary because she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha's like, you know when people are upset and they're, and they're working, but they're working hard and gruff? You know what I'm talking about? Like, making dishes hit hard. And you say, what's wrong? Nothing. Those of you that are married can... Well, I'm the dish man, so heck, that's just what it is. I'm the dish man, she's the laundry lady, so we've already worked that out. And, Mary, thank you. So Martha's upset. Jesus says, what's going on with you? Why are you upset? Well, because look, Mary has taken the place of a disciple at your feet. That that woman doesn't know her place. Her place is here washing dishes. And Jesus says, don't you dare take the place that I have set for her to be my disciple. Mary's always doing the right thing. She's always got this intuition. And we even see Mary break a flask of very uh, expensive perfume over Jesus. And I thought, where does Mary get this idea? You know where Mary gets this idea? Luke chapter 7. A sinful woman pops in while Jesus is in a house dining and reclining with some Pharisees. And whenever time sinner is mentioned in the Bible, like Jesus ate with sinners, sinners broke down into two categories. There was, uh, there was uh, tax collectors and prostitutes. So when you see sinners, that's the two areas of society where Jesus is referencing. So her being a woman, she wasn't a tax collector. So we can only assume at this point she was promiscuous because her hair was uncovered and she was probably a woman of the streets, probably a pagan, probably wasn't even uh, a Jew at, at any point. But she heard Jesus was coming to town. And the Bible says that she took an alabaster box and broke it. And it had a year's worth of wages, life savings, lost all in one moment, gone. And she anoints Jesus with it. And Jesus makes the statement, He who has been forgiven much, loves much. And the reason you don't love much is because you don't think you've been forgiven of much. You don't know how much you've been forgiven. 
And so I begin to thinking about this alabaster. And this, this was a stone. It was oriental alabaster. It's not like the alabaster that we know of today. This was developed in caverns as, that, as a, a cavern or a cave would begin to drip when the pH was just right and the settings were just right. This drip of water would come off a stalactite and begin to hit the floor, which would create a stalagmite. And so drip, 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 drip drip year after year drip 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 year after year until it gets big enough to create a vessel to put the anointing in see she couldn't have got the anointing there if she didn't have a vessel to carry it in come on somebody Come on. We're so worried about the anointing, we've refused to let God build our character. And that's why we can't carry nothing nowhere. That's why we've run out of gas about three steps in and then back up and go the other way. See, drip, drip, drip. And so she takes this flask. And the Bible says she breaks it. You know something about being broken? Is that she couldn't change her mind and put it back in there. She didn't just take the lid off and go, bloop. All right, Jesus, next week, I'll see you next week for an hour. That the totality of her life, life savings, broken in a moment of time on Jesus and says, Jesus, I don't want it back. That this would be the greatest place that I could expend my life and expend my savings and expend everything that I am. That this is the profitable place for this to go. And it's all yours. So where did Mary, the one that's always doing right, hear about anointing Jesus and what gets Jesus' attention? Heard it from a prostitute. So what is God saying to us here? He's saying it don't matter how you start. He's saying if you'll get a revelation of Jesus, that you can set the standard for those who supposedly got the character. You can set the standard by devotion and by offering and by pouring yourself out for Him and that you can begin to set the standard that when Mary hears about what gets Jesus' attention, oh, that does, I'm joining her in that. I'm joining her in that. Would you stand to your feet with me? We're going to play that song, Nothing Else. And I want you to begin to examine your heart. If you say, man, you know what? I don't want anything else to matter more than Jesus. I want to pour my life out as an offering unto Him. And I want to make a declaration today and do inventory and see where my priorities really are. And I want to begin to offer myself afresh unto Jesus. If that's you, I want you to come down to this front and I want you to lift your hands. I want you to come make this song a, a, a place of worship for you. Thank you, Lord. It's about living a life that counts. It's about living a life that counts. And what counts 